We have such a great podcast today. I am so excited. It's kind of a follow-up on last week where I talked about self-care, and this was unintentional, but it worked out so great. It is with Jessie Panazzolo. She is the founder of Lonely Conservationists, and today we talk about what a lonely conservationist is, why conservationists struggle with loneliness, among other issues, and what those issues are, some of the challenges that we face in the field, in our industry. This is a really fun wide-ranging conversation. We even talk about her getting chased by a tiger for real. And then also sustainable palm oil. I asked her about that because she has actually worked with orangutans and been to palm oil conferences. So it's a really cool uh, wide-ranging conversation. I just have a couple of brief announcements before we begin. If you missed my free training in December, The Seven Steps to Find Your Wildlife Biology Career Path, it is available again for the month of January on my website. Just go to fancyscientist.com and you will see it on the menu under free training. This is my webinar giving you the seven steps to find your wildlife biology career path. It is everything I know based on my my 17 years of experience, the mistakes that I made and how this, my, my training didn't exactly, or didn't prepare me for really what the job, for really the jobs that I wanted. I can't talk today. So it's a really great free training. It's only up for January and I'm doing it one video at a time. So the first video is out, video two is coming Monday and three the week after that. I also am working on creating a lot of really fun resources for you guys, a, really, a lot of really useful ones. I also organize those into a resources tab, so you'll also see that in the menu. If you have problems finding things that are useful on my website and other people's websites, I put them all in one place. And it's 2021. Conferences kind of died last year. Some went virtual, but a lot of them were just canceled. This year, conferences are back on the calendar. Hopefully, some of them are going to be live. And I made a conference calendar. So if you are interested in wildlife biology, ecology, zoology, any of those fields, download my conference calendar and you will get all the important dates about when abstracts are due. Hashtag so you can follow them. If you are not on Twitter, you should join Twitter so that you could follow conferences and network with other scientists. I have a whole post about that, about how Twitter is such a great tool for your career. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with this talk with Jesse. I am so excited. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Okay, so it says recording on your side? Yep. See, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. And I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) So I know you from your your website, right? It was first a blog mm-hmm. and it's called Lonely Conservationist. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what exactly is a lonely conservationist? It's interesting because the other day I was wearing a lonely conservationist t-shirt and somebody was like, oh, why would you wear around that you're lonely? And I think <laughs> there's a lot of stigma about being imperfect and especially 
a couple of years ago, until I started this community, there was a huge amount of stigma surrounding not being seen as perfect in the conservation industry. Because the conservation industry, there's not a lot of jobs, the pressure's on, and you have to always be seen as putting your best foot forward and you basically want to be the most employable person. And for instance, when I graduated my conservation uh, and biodiversity bachelor's degree, there was about 200 graduates that year and basically like three jobs available. So it's a bit intense when you're just trying to get into the industry. And because of that, a lot of people have hidden for a long time the realities of being in the industry. And the realities of course, is that a lot of the time we're working in isolating conditions. There's a lot of burnout because we're not getting paid that much. Especially in academia, there's a lot of like hierarchies and bullying and suppression and elitism. And I think it's so crazy how much the industry has been glorified for how bad often the time that we all feel in it. So we're all walking around pretending that everything's okay when really we're hurting. And the problem with the glorification part of it is we all think everybody else is doing fine and that we're the only ones that are hurting. So basically when I started Lonely Conservationist, I felt like the loneliest conservationist in the world. And this was my call to the world to see if there was anybody else out there that felt how I did in the industry. So it was really crazy. I published my first blog in January, 2019. By the end of the year, we had over 50 blogs. And now at the end of 2020, we have over a uh, hundred blogs, which means that a hundred people from all over the world have decided to share their stories about how they've been impacted in the conservation industry, which means I'm not the loneliest conservationist in the world. And the things that I've experienced are actually very common throughout the people, not just in Australia where I live, but like all over the world, which is insane. Yeah, I love that you say that. I do see scientists getting more vulnerable and and I notice that through my my graduate experiences. I, I would maybe tell my friends, but I wouldn't want to say things that might make me look bad, especially in public or in front of colleagues, because you're right, you're kind of like always on the job market, at least, or at least I was, I was in graduate school and then I had postdocs. And I was especially concerned about having a hard time finding a job. And then finally, I, I, on Twitter, I would see like other people post the same things. And I was like, oh, there's more of us out there like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about your, your background into going into conservation, like how you decided to do that as a career and your training and maybe some of your job experiences as well? Yeah, I feel like personally, there's not a lot of conservationists that have a choice in getting into conservation. Because if we had this rational choice, we would have done something that required less effort and got us more money. So I feel like a lot of conservationists are in it for the passion. And especially in my case, I was three years old and I was handed a stuffed toy gorilla. And as a very curious child, that made me just so empowered to learn about primates and especially great apes and how close they were to us. And as I researched, I realized all the deforestation and everything that was happening to the point that when I was five years old, I walked up to my mom and my mom's friend and asked her, mom, how do I save the orangutans? And it turned out that in that moment, I learned that adults actually don't know everything and she couldn't just give me an answer. So I basically spent the rest of my life trying to work out how I could save the orangutans on my own. And I worked my whole life trying to achieve this goal until I finished my undergraduate in biodiversity and conservation. 
and ended up doing my honors in North Sumatra where I was working with like the top orangutan scientists. And when I got there, I started looking around the nurseries and I looked at the local North Sumatran women planting trees with their children. And then I looked at their husbands maintaining the reforestation sites and the language and culture change. And I just looked around and I was like, oh crap, I am not, I don't belong here. I can't pass on long-term behavioral change. I can't have that generational ch change of knowledge and the, the sharing of education and knowledge between generations. I am just this white person that's come into this. And then so I went back to Australia and I felt really sad because I'd spent 24 years of my life working on this one goal of conserving orangutans and Sumatran rainforests. And I finally get there and I realized this is not the place for me. If I really cared about it, I would not be involved directly in the conservation. So this is where my lonely conservationist journey kind of started because coming back to Australia, I worked in a lot of small businesses run by families who had really horrible conditions and they treated me really badly and I was really unfortunate enough to have a string of really bad bosses and doing volunteer work where I would get I would be doing like very skilled volunteer work not just data entry or anything but I'd be writing reports and doing like crazy data analysis and I was told by one company that was really big and reputable they were like oh your work is actually having funding implications and I was like what do you mean you're not paying me if my work is having implications towards like the money that the company gets so my friend basically had to sit me down and say you will never get a job here if you keep working for free like they will just keep exploiting you if you just keep giving it to them so basically I went home that day and I sat on the couch and I didn't go into the office that Monday. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? I think my whole career in the industry is over. I've networked as much as I can. I have experience in like seven equatorial countries, but now obviously I know that it's not worth me traveling as a local Australian. I should be contributing to Australian projects, but the Australian projects I'm getting bullied in and it's a really toxic environment. Like, what do I do? Like, how can I break into the industry? And that is when I published my first blog because I basically wanted to know if anybody else had felt like they'd spent their whole life trying to establish themselves and just felt like there was no hope for them in the industry and that everything was lost and it was just like the end of the world. I thought I'd have to change careers or something because at that point in my life, I thought it, like every piece of me, my blood, sweat and tears, every spare moment was educating myself, volunteering, doing everything I could to be in the industry. And none of it was enough. Did you know before going into this industry that it was like that? Like, did you know that the pay wasn't great and that you might have to volunteer and things like that? Mm -hmm. Well, my mom always told me, like, if you want to be rich, don't be a scientist. And I mean, like, of course, there's <laughs> pharmacists or other scientists that are probably doing well, but I knew money wasn't something that would be abundant to me in this industry. But I think because I was so passionate from such a young age and they were telling me, if you do volunteer work, you're more likely to get a job. I was like, okay, I've been doing everything in my power since I was three years old to get in the industry. Like I have some years of experience and I have time to establish myself. So I think it was just disheartening when I, the work that people said I would need to put in, I did put in, but that was only a fraction of what you realistically had to put in to get anywhere. Yeah, I, so I, I went into this career and I knew I wasn't gonna make a lot of money, but I was really surprised 
what the jobs that I was competitive for were paying given all the years of experience, like doing a PhD. And my husband, who he is in a lot more lucrative field, he's in electrical engineering, but he just has way less education and experience and he gets paid so much more. It's really, it's really shocking. But what I think has changed more since, um, so I'm older than you, since I was an undergrad, I think that finding paid internships and paid temporary work is harder now. I think there were, there were definitely experiences that you had to pay for or you could volunteer, but I think it's kind of switched now where that's more the norm and it's problematic because people need to eat and you can only afford to go into this career if you're, if you're wealthy, essentially, which excludes a lot of people. Yeah, and that sets a really good tone for exclusion within conservation. And it's hard when it's already so competitive and already so elitist and glamorized. And then you add that extra level of like, you're too poor to be in conservation or you don't have, like you have a partner that earns more than you. And I have a partner that's in IT who luckily like literally Mm -hmm. didn't pass his tertiary education, but still earns more (laughs) than me now when I have two degrees. So that's fun. Like we have luckily support systems that can help us in this journey. And it just means that if you're single or if you come from a lower socioeconomic background and you have to provide for your family, like conservation is just not accessible to you. And that just breaks my heart because there's so many people with so many different perspectives and ways to solve problems. And if we keep only having elitist people in the industry, they're only going to be the same mindsets and they're only going to have the same ideas. So that means there's not a diversity of thought to solve diverse problems. And it just, it just keeps making more problems, if anything. Yeah, my husband was a solid C student and no internships or anything. And he got a job after three job interviews. He's really smart. He just doesn't do well in school. But so are you are you working in conservation right now or are you working full time with your blog or what, what do you what is your work situation like now? It was interesting in 2020 because I couldn't work. I was a teacher teaching casually environmental excursions, but then in March when coronavirus came along, I was no longer able to teach, which was good for me because the government gave us enough subsidies to have a pretty nice life. And that meant I just had the year freed up to do whatever I want. And I wrote my book and I started a podcast and I did all these things. And now life is going back to normal. And the teaching job I have is only casual and it's not enough to live off of. So I'm really prioritizing this year, setting an example for my community and trying to prioritize being able to look after myself because I think this is something we feel guilty for almost in the conservation industry is that we feel like we have to give so much and just be okay with the lack of pay and the lack of respect or the lack of value. But I think now it's really important for me to be self-sufficient and to have a job that allows me to just live comfortably because I want the people in my community to have that same respect for themselves and to not give everything with not a lot in return. But then also at the same time that I'm battling I was able to give so much into Lonely Conservationist last year because I had the resources, time and money. Now, if I get a full-time job, I'm going to have to balance the projects I want to do for Lonely Conservationist around supporting myself. So I think 
the good thing about my community is it's based on candor and being really open and honest about the struggles of conservation. And this is just another one. So if I have to share this experience with my community and work it out for myself, I feel like it's only gonna be useful being open about that. So it's, although I am facing internal battles of like, I am in a position where I have to wait to hear about interviews or like if you apply for jobs that leaves the power in the hands of other people and for a lot of conservationists we like being proactive and doing something and feeling productive and I know if I start a lot of projects now I might not be able to commit to finishing them if I have a whole heap of time um, taken away by employment so yeah, I'm still navigating this after this is my third year of lonely conservationist in 2021 and I still haven't figured it out so hopefully that's not too depressing for anyone wanting to get into the industry. <laughs> no, it's not depressing. I think it's exciting actually. And I think that even though you don't have it all figured out, I think that we now live in a time where people don't always have it figured out for a long time. And I think, I think there's a lot of people who maybe thought they were, sorry, my dog is pestering me. <laughs> they were, they had it figured out and then they like wanted to change careers. That's what happened to me is I thought I had it figured out and I wanted to do research. And then I really realized what I liked was, was this was science communication. And I'm trying to figure it out like you, like how to, how to make this into a business, how to make money, how to, how to turn this into a full-time career. And it's really a new landscape. These are, it, it's a pretty new position that's happened really since the rise of social media, which has been around for a long time, but there hasn't really been careers around it for, for that long. Yeah. And I was even talking to someone about this yesterday is that a lot of conservation social media is not in the curriculum but a lot of conservationists rely heavily on uh, social media for fundraising or for science communication or something and a lot of people really need it to be more ingrained in how we're taught about conservation so people can have more opportunities to use these resources and it's interesting because i applied for a master's last year and actually got accepted but i had to turn it down because of covid funding got caught got cut and it's interesting because now I've been rejected for two positions I was like really worried within myself that I would regret having turned that position down just because it would be a stable thing knowing what I was going to be doing for the for the year but what I am really thankful for is that I now am realizing I don't actually want to be in research and I don't like referencing that much or like sieving through academic papers. It's more this communication and talking to my community and finding things out from people that I really enjoy. So it's interesting how I think in our careers, if we go through an academic route, it's like there's almost this expectation that we will be in the science area or that we'll stick with research. And it just seemed like something that was like so natural to me to go into a pathway and then I had to I even had to turn the position down to be like oh actually this is not something I want for myself to live in poverty for another two years with Harvard referencing so <laughs> that's just is interesting to see how you realized that research wasn't something you were really passionate about either and it just I wonder if this is something a lot of people go through yeah it took me a long time too and after you go through graduate school I feel like they make you feel like a failure if you don't continue on research. Nobody explicitly said that to me, but there's like subtle undertones like, oh, you couldn't make it. So you went to education or you went to science communication. But another reason why I wanted to do science communication is because 
I, I feel like we have so much research on so many things. And yet, like here in the United States, people don't necessarily believe that humans are the main cause of climate change. So it's like, we don't need more data. We need to figure out how to talk to those people and to get them to understand the data or agree with the data or even just forget the data completely and talk to them in a, in a different way. So that's what I became really interested in. So I, so you, so you mentioned you've had an incredible growth since your blog. You've only been doing it um, for a couple of years. So you said you posted one blog post and then mm-hmm. you like kind of asked for, for people, if there are other people out there, can you tell me about that response? Like, did you like actively post it on social media and be like, is anyone out there? Did you just kind of let it like float? And then people started commenting. <laughs> What's really weird is that So I only created the Instagram page on my friend told me like, if you're creating a blog, nobody organically finds blogs. So create an Instagram page and you can direct people from there. But I started off both with zero, like zero followers, zero people knew about it. So it was crazy how fast it grew from word of mouth. And do you know, you know, Amanda Hips, right? Yeah, so she's one of my friends. We used to work together in Madagascar. Your Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <You're> like- <laughs> we were like volunteer buddies in Madagascar. And I think because she's American, she has a larger following and she was able to draw heaps of people. But then it was really interesting to me how many of these followers were American. And here in Australia, I was like, oh, where, where are some of my own buddies? <laughs> like, where are some people from the Southern Hemisphere? So I did a bit of work in trying to find accounts to follow or bring in that more global. So it was interesting because literally I did not a lot to advertise it at all. It was just word of mouth. I think this was something that a lot of people needed in their lives. And just to find out that people were talking about how they were struggling was something that they wanted to get in on. And they, even if they didn't contribute, just wanted to read or know that it wasn't them that was alone. So within, so I published my first blog and then like within that week, I had three blogs submitted to me and I didn't even really officially call it out and say this is a submission process it was just my blog and I was like hey does anybody else feel this way and then I get three emails saying like here's my story too so it was interesting how it was such a rapid interest and how it like sustained so now we do every Wednesday there's a new blog published to the page from a conservationist somewhere in the world but I'm just bewildered that it sustained like a blog every Wednesday for like two years now so I just, the whole time I've been doing it, I haven't really publicized it that much. Like I've done speaking opportunities like this and there's been a few articles written about me, but in the end, I think it's just word of mouth that brings people in, which is crazy because I didn't think anything I could do, especially feeling lonely and defeated could have that much impact on people. Well, I think it speaks to the problems that we have in, 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 I think it's in science, honestly, that we are supposed to have this like tough guy attitude that nothing affects us. And like you were saying, there's, there's bullying, there's mistreatment of employees. And I've heard so many people who come on this podcast talk about that. I, I haven't experienced that as much directly. I haven't, I've had some difficult bosses in graduate school was a difficult work environment, but I definitely felt super lonely at many times, even, even just like physically lonely. Like when I did my field work, like sometimes I, there would only be like one other person there and you're there for like four months at a time. And you just don't realize how much you miss like being around people. Yeah. And it's interesting because 
it, oftentimes when it's when I'm by myself that you get those like thoughts of like despair like what am I doing like this is what I work so hard for and I'm finally here and it's just me in a field and there was this book I was reading by Tammy Matson who was talking about lying in a tent in the middle of Africa and having a big bull elephant standing over her tent and farting and she's like what is my life like this is the epitome of like the weird despair of conservationists and then she went back home to Sydney and started doing other stuff because I think there's like moments like that where it's just like okay this is not a life that people should be living <laughs> and you can't really talk to anybody about it who who isn't in the field like they think you're a total weirdo <laughs> yeah and that's actually what I experienced so when I published my book, it's called How to Conserve Conservationists. I basically talk about the things I wish people knew about my life in conservation or how people should be respecting conservationists more because I guess other people think it's so glorified, but we're all suffering. So I wanted to both like give conservationists a big hug and say, you're not alone, but also say to your friends and family, this is what you should keep in mind. And the second chapter was about how we should talk to conservationists. And I was talking about how I got like chased by a tiger in Malaysia and I told my parents I was like oh my god this happened to me and they're like okay that's cool sweetie um, and then they like to my brother how's your how's your football going and I think it's because and I've talked to a lot of people about this and I've since talked to them about this like I think they didn't understand how bad it was till they listened to me talk about it on the podcast and they're like oh my god like we didn't mean for this we love you but I think people don't understand how that's possible like a Wednesday morning and my daughter gets chased by a tiger that doesn't seem real and I think people don't know how to process this so I think like a lot of things we talk about in conservation seem like otherworldly like I don't know if Tammy could go home and be like people be like, why did you go home? She's like, oh, I was lying in bed and then an elephant farted on top of me. And then people be like, that's not real, but okay. So I think there's this thing of like, normal people in desk jobs can't understand what we go through and therefore we can't even have a chance at communicating that effectively. So I think that's another thing that plays into it as well. So you legit got chased by a tiger. <laughs> It was interesting because you have to tell this story because I because because I I've been chased by elephants but you can run from elephants I imagine mm -hmm. tigers you're not supposed to run from them because they're big cats they're predators what it, how did you get out of that situation it was like a nightmare we were following these elephant footsteps to this place that's like called elephant caves in Malaya's Guagaja and we get there and then I start wandering in the caves and the local guides we were with so it was me, another PhD student who I was following around because I, I was about to do my honors on elephants and I wanted to learn about elephant research from him. So it was me, a PhD student who only spoke Malay and two local guides that only spoke the local indigenous language. So I start like wandering in the caves and then suddenly the guides are like, get out, get out, run. I'm like, are they afraid of bats? I don't know. We were all running until the guy I was with heard the word harimau which means tiger and he's like oh crap like run but it was like the mud was so thick and I was wearing waterproof socks and wader shoes like not boots at all because I was wanting to keep my feet dry so I was like sinking into the mud and then the in local guides were running behind us like carving like chopping trees down and like carving like spears out of the stumps of the tree with their machetes as they were running and I didn't look behind me I didn't like see the tiger but we're all like sprinting through the forest and we just hear like Rawr! and we're like ah <laughs> and then we just keep running until eventually like we hit a clearing and we stop 
but I was like so bewildered because usually I can't function if I did, don't eat breakfast but that morning like the guys with didn't eat breakfast so we didn't stop and I was like I can't believe I've run from this tiger without even eating breakfast like I am invincible <laughs> oh my gosh that is scary yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. So when I call, like text my parents, we have this family chat and I was like, you never believe what happened to me. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And I was like, what do you mean that's cool? <laughs> oh, that's scary. I'm scared of all wild animals because they can all mm -hmm. be they can all kill you when they want to. <laughs> yeah. Like the uh, next year, like an orangutan ripped out a tree and tried to like shove it on us. And I'm like, I'm just not going to tell anybody about this. Like they will not believe me. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> Okay, so I just wanted to talk about your book real quick. So how did you how did you make that happen? Did you you just like went ahead and wrote it? That's awesome. Yeah, my friend was like, Jesse, you should go, you should take a break. You've been working really hard this year, and I think with COVID, if you're working on your own and like you don't have a stop time to finish work or clock off, or you don't have like weekends separated from the weekdays, you just end up doing a lot of things and not giving yourself any time. And she's like, you should take a break. And I'm like, you're right. So I took a week off where I just was like, okay, I'll spend some time relaxing. And then I was kind of thinking about the the reason why I started Lonely Conservationist. And I, I was getting kind of frustrated with Instagram and social media of the more followers I get, the less I'm able to communicate effectively with all of them. And I feel like I was like, I had to continually repeat myself to get just one message across. And it was just driving my head in. I was like, I didn't create this community to keep just repeating one message over and over again. And I just kind of wished in that moment, I had this space to collate everything I've learned from the past two years and like give people that information and be like, this is what I want you to know because this is like the messages I wanna give across. So I started writing this book and my friend's like, I told you to have a break. I didn't tell you to take a week off and write a book. <laughs> but it just turned out to be so therapeutic and the thing that I needed to do because it was good for me as well to get everything I've learned in a, chrono a chronological order and to like have it laying in front of me and make sense of it. And it was more for me as well than anything else. So I just talked about I think it's an intro and conclusion, eight things, like eight topics that I've been affected by in my life in conservation that I wish other people knew about when they talked to me or they were asking me about things and topics that I wish other people knew they weren't alone in dealing with. So it took me like two months to write or like a month to write and a month to publish. Like it was very, very quick. That's it's it? only a hundred. Yeah, it's, it's only a hundred pages. It's not more. that long either, but it took me like <laughs> a year and a half to do. I don't Maybe know. I'm just, I was the person that I would get an assignment in school and then I would finish it like that night. And then my teacher's like, well, what are you supposed to do now? Like I have to invent more work for you. Like I got in trouble <laughs> for doing my assignments too quickly. So we have to keep this in mind that this is not a normal thing for people to do. <laughs> but it was self-published. So I just had to go through the process of like working with the online publisher. And then it was mm -hmm. out there and I was, I was freaking out because I think as someone that's uh, like, if you haven't been valued your whole life, it's really nerve wracking to feel like the words you say actually will mean something or have value. So I was so relieved when there was a positive 
reaction from the book because I just built it up in my head as like something I'd written really fast, something that would have no weight to it. Would it be controversial? Would there be articles like Jessie thinks she knows everything, but actually it's all like not true. <laughs> so that was a real lesson to me in imposter syndrome, which was crazy because I'd just literally written a chapter about imposter syndrome, but now I had to like humble myself and go through it again. So, I so guess how like- did you get over that then? Because a lot of people, like like the, those thoughts that you said, a mm-hmm. lot of people would stop themselves and not put that out there. And putting a putting a blog out there is scary for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. how did how did you talk yourself out of that? It was actually we had another set of imposter syndrome when I was like to my partner, should we do a podcast? Because I was looking up marketing strategies for books and especially in COVID, I couldn't do like book launches or anything in person. So Mm -hmm. I had to work out creative ways to get this out to people. And I was, I'd just gone on a few people's podcasts before. And one of the ideas for marketing was to do like a podcast tour. And I was like, but I've just been on people's podcasts. I can't go on there again. So I was like, what if I create my own and each episode was about each chapter of the book. So we released the first chapter, the first three episodes or something before the book was even available. Like I had published it and it was pending, but it still had to reach all the different stores. So I knew it would be out very soon. But I got, because it was basically the same topics that I was talking about in the book and the podcast, I got overwhelmingly positive feedback on the first couple of episodes of the podcast. And that's how I knew like if people would like the podcast then they would like the book so I think thankfully if we didn't do a podcast I would have been stewing in my self-doubt for a lot longer but but because we were brave enough like we almost didn't do the podcast too like why would people want to listen to us like we don't have anything to say but in the end it was talking to ourselves like okay we'll try if we think it's good we will release it to the world and if it's bad we just won't we won't do anything with it like we didn't tell anyone we're making a podcast. There's no pressure. We didn't sign any contracts. So it gave us the freedom to just take a leap and, and record something. And if we thought it was good, then we could publish it. And if not, then we had no pressure to do anything with it. Well, and I think you're also really helping people too. That's like what's so important is you're doing such a good service for all the people out there who are who are really struggling with bad bosses and difficult work conditions. And like you said, thinking you're the only one when you're not. So you mentioned that there's a community. So does your, I I saw on your blog that you can like log in. So is there like some sort of membership? Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. So there's a, a few different ways to get involved. I think a lot of people use the internet differently. So there's a few facets to get information. I think the logins started on the website. Basically, I was doing this business incubator, kind of like you trying to work out how to make what I what, what I love doing a business. But it turned out that a lot of people wanted to exploit lonely conservationists to help on their projects. Like I thought it would be good. Like we have all this access and free time to write grants and do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people like farmers, for instance, who need grants to be written, but don't know how to write them. Could we make partnerships? So I was basically started the memberships to get people who had certain skills and and other people could partner with them and use them but it turned out that I went out to do a job and I was getting finally paid money for it and I was like this is amazing I'm getting paid to survey birds which is what I love doing and like I'm getting paid really well but then the person who was running it like just let me be treated so sexistly in the field and when I went to his office 
to say like, look, this is not acceptable. And, and in fact, you know, lonely conservationists, I'm standing up for these things not happening. He was basically like, oh, well, we should have trained you better instead of changing the culture in our uh, mm. farm. So then I was like, I don't feel comfortable putting any conservationists out into mm. positions that are out of my control where they could keep getting exposed to the same prevalent issues in the community. So now basically the membership is if you want like very tailored emails about things that are happening. So you're more directly up to date with if we're doing webinars, if we have new merch or the books or opportunities, that's how you 100% find out about them. Then, so the Instagram page was like the OG community, but I found it frustrating how people can't talk directly. They have to talk through me basically. Yeah. So I started setting up different communities from different countries, but we can only fit 35 people in a in a chat. So then that restricts people beyond 35. So I started the Discord page so people can chat freely. But then there's the issue of like, everyone's got so vastly different time zones and it kind of stunts the conversation. So I'm still trying to navigate. I'm working with an app at the moment to see if we can get a lonely conservationist community where there's different topics we can talk about and maybe have like uh, conversations divided by topics instead of countries and then people can just chat when they need help about a specific thing but I think that's the hard part about having a global community is I didn't really appreciate the time zone differences yeah. and different cultural values there's a lot of especially between Australians and Americans there's a lot of things that we perceive as conservation that you don't perceive as conservation or vice versa so I really have had to across the board avoid talking about conservation issues otherwise people get into really heated arguments about it so even now the app I'm working with to create a new conservation space he's like I'll make a group for conservation news and updates and I was like no take that off like we just focus on the conservationist and at least we can all agree on that so it's been like interesting exploring new media and having like like discussions on a youtube channel or a podcast and like trying to no matter if you like watching or reading or listening hopefully there's some facet of way that you can get your information in this community can you give an example of one of the conservation things that americans and australians disagree about yeah, so <laughs> we have an American and Australian here. <laughs> yeah, so one time I, I give people the freedom to post whatever picture they want, like accompanying their blogs. But on the Instagram page, I usually say like, it's lonely conservationists, make sure it's just you in nature. But this person had written a blog and had posted a picture of her holding baboons. And as a primate person, I should have known better because you're taught when you work with primates, never share photos of you holding them because they're cute and people might want to buy them and it can have all these like lead on effects in the black market industry and the, the wildlife trade and pet trade and all this stuff. And I was, somebody came up to me and they messaged me and they're like, Jesse, I love your community. I've been following you for years, but if you allow posts like this to be on the internet, I will have to leave your community because this is something I feel so strongly about. And I was like, you're right. You know, this is something I believe in as well. I have been avoiding talking about conservation issues because I don't want it to be about the issue. I wanted it to just be about the people. And she talks about how she worked with baboons in the blog. And I thought like, oh, it's fine. People know she's a conservationist. It's on lonely conservationist. Like it should be fine. But then I was like, I have to be really careful of what I'm putting out into the world because I more than anyone don't want to sacrifice my values to 
just make life easier for the community, I guess. So basically I made a statement. No, firstly, I talked to the person and she said, oh, I'm, I'll happily give you another photo. That's totally fair. And in fact, I'm like happy that she pulled me up on this. And I was like, okay, cool, everything's, everything's fine. So I made a statement saying going forward, let's not have any conservationists holding any animal in our photos. And it just like half of the community was like messaging me like, thank you, this is the best decision. You're doing the right <laughs> thing. Some reason the American chat group, it was like someone messaged me like, Jesse, they're going crazy. It's like riots happening in there. They're like saying really horrible stuff about you. And it turned out that the American view, at least in my community, was that it's better to post people pictures of people holding wildlife and say they have permits and talk about why they're able to hold wildlife and why they're doing it then just like not having that there as an educational resource because I think like in Australia for instance there's no animals here except for in zoos that aren't uh, native wildlife and introduced species like we don't have tigers here just in people's houses like there's no use of wild animals that isn't just like them running around outside so I feel like because of that there is no question whether people are handling things in a safe way here whereas in America I feel like if you have like Tiger King style places or people mm -hmm. with exotic pets there is a need to educate about the distinction between like handling something for conservation purposes and just willy-nilly having a pet chameleon. So I feel like because of that niche cultural aspect of America, there was just this huge uproar when I made that decision. So I have to be very, very careful when I talk about anything to do with conservation that's not conservationist. I'm disappointed in the Americans. I side with you guys in Australia, and I actually have some podcast episodes and blogs about that, and they were inspired by Tiger King, that we as the scientists, even if we have these permits, it's just... It, for, for one thing, people don't know, like the animal is anesthetized in the photo. I actually had, I actually made the mistake of, I had a picture of myself with a museum a taxidermy animal and someone pointed out that they could mistake that for a real animal. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. Okay, Cause it's just my Twitter picture and it was really mm -hmm. small. And, and you never think of that. Cause you know, yeah. it's like a dead animal. You're like, there's no risk. Here. Yeah. Right. And with tourism and stuff, you know, people can travel all over and get those photos with animals, which are bad for animal welfare, bad for a lot of times there's conservation implications. They take them for the wild. Yeah. So I think, I think the only time it's okay to show you with wildlife is if it's like really obvious you're a researcher, like you have on an official mm -hmm. uniform or like you're measuring them or some sort of way because people don't read text too that's that's another thing like even if it's yeah. in a blog post or they could take it out of context but yeah but I'm glad I'm glad you made that decision that's one I agree with mm, thank you thank you <laughs> I feel validated from my American sides <laughs> but I also uh, yeah. think insects we should normalize holding insects because I feel like there's such a fear over them that's like I don't see any time Apart from maybe if there's like a traveling school or something that they would let you hold different like stick insects or something. But I feel like usually it's fine to pick them up. And I feel like if there's somebody holding a bug, I want more people to think that it's okay to engage with insects yeah. in nature. I think that's where I draw the line. 
Yeah, no, it's tricky. I mean, I definitely, I don't really like hold turtles anymore, but I, I pick them up and move them across the road and mm -hmm. I am, I am careful not to take pictures, but I do agree there are, it, it is different for different animals. And um, I think herpetologists I mean, are like, so used to touching everything that they, there's like a different league for herpetologists because I, I feel like there's, I always see pictures of holding reptiles and stuff, but in my yeah. brain, there's such a huge black market trade for reptiles like shouldn't they have the same standards that mammal people do so it's complicated i, I think so yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. um it, it is, it's complicated. And, and as a kid, I grew up catching frogs and snakes. I mean, we would let them go, but I, I loved seeing them up close, but yeah, now I just try to get really good photos. I do have an unexpected question for you. Okay. <laughs> so I've been talking about palm oil recently that mm -hmm. the boycotts don't work because it could or it is likely to make the, the situation worse uh, because palm oil is actually a really efficient. I'm explaining this so the, the, so viewers know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you know this. Mm -hmm. So palm oil is a pretty efficient crop compared to other vegetable oils in terms of it uses less land than, than them. But of course, it's horrible for biodiversity. So it's they're basically like bulldozing these you know beautiful primary forests and and notably getting rid of habitat for orangutans. But I also know there's like, there's real problems with sustainable palm oil. So, so other people are like, just get rid of, just get rid of sustainable palm oil. You can't promote it because it's like greenwashing. What, what do you think about that? This is like exactly what you said, like palm oil gives the highest yield per hectare, but the problem is they're ripping up all this native forest land so then people then orangutans have nowhere to live and it's just crazy because sustainable palm oil sometimes also has like normal palm oil mixed into it and I went to conferences like in 2012 I went to a palm oil conference and literally at the end of the three days nobody could agree on like what should be said because the messaging is so complicated you can't yeah. say anything like definitively black or white to the public you can't say boycott this and you also can't say, well, like sustainable is good, but like not all the time. <laughs> it's like people need some like actionable thing to do. And it's interesting because actually when I was in my third year of my undergrad, I watched a documentary about the thylacine, like the Tasmanian tiger and how it had a bounty on its head. And it was like completely shot. The last one was thrown out in the trash. And then this rich millionaire was trying to clone them back to life using this old fetus mm -hmm. and suspended in alcohol. And I was getting so mad because the similarities between Tasmanian tigers and Tassie devils, so similar. I was like, why aren't we using your millions of dollars to go towards Tasmanian devil conservation? Why are you trying to bring back a species that wouldn't even be viable if you cloned it back? I got so angry and then it made me think like, well, I'm getting so angry, but what am I doing for conservation? And I thought like, what am I passionate about? And at the time I worked for Subway, like the sandwich company, and I noticed that on their box of bread and cookies, palm oil was labeled very clearly. And I was like, I've tried to talk to them about this before, did nothing work. So I made a petition that night to take palm oil out of Subway. And the thing about this is it went viral because nobody knew palm oil was in Subway. So it was more like an education thing than a like takedown. Anyway, like they, the head office of Subway Australia drove to my university, pulled me out of my GIS lecture and like made wow. me sit in there. <laughs> and they're like made all these promises to take palm oil out by 2015, which I don't think ever happened. They just wanted to like shut me up 
by saying they would do things. But basically, like, that gave me opportunities to go in and listen into all these conferences because people were like, oh, who's this girl? Like, she's taking people down from the inside. Like, we want her in. So by listening in the conferences, I learned more about, like, what goes on from the production side and what the Malaysian embassy thinks and what Zoos Victoria think. And it was interesting to get that wider perspective. But then I learned, obviously, as I grew up and I went to the oil palm plantations and I I did more research and I learned, I was like, boycotting is not the solution. And I did that because I was young and that just seemed like in my angry state of I need to do something. It seemed like the most tangible thing that I could do. So now it's complicated because back then I was like, this is definitely what I'm going to do to make an impact. And now I'm like, well, I don't know, like if I don't eat a bag of Doritos because it has palm oil in it, like how much impact am I actually having when they use palm oil to power trains and like it's used for like on such a global level. So in conclusion, like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I just, I, I found out recently too, I always boycotted palm oil and then I, I found out through the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo that you should actually not boycott it and advocate for sustainable palm oil. So I wrote a blog post and there's these like, there's these people on Twitter who are very, very passionate about boycotting palm oil. And I got like lumped in with like, they think I'm like this, they think I'm getting like paid by the palm oil industry or something. And at, at that, now I have two, two podcasts or and I had one podcast about it, one YouTube video and one um, blog post about it. That's it. And yeah, they think I'm getting like all this money from the palm oil <laughs> industry or the sustainable palm oil industry. And it's like, no, it's like, I, I like, and I'm trying to tell them like, we have a lot in common. We all want to save biodiversity. It's just that I, I know that boycotting it based on the experts is not going to work. And then mm-hmm. now there's recently, it looks like scientists have been able to make synthetic palm oil. But even then, even if we replace all the synthetic palm oil, like all those people will be out of jobs. And then they're, I mean, honestly, they'll probably turn to something else that is destructive to the forest. They're not not just going to all go into tourism. Yeah. Um, Well, what I saw really worked was that my organization in North Sumatra would actually hire, they would buy oil palm plantations and hire the workers to convert those plantations back into secondary forest. So by doing that, you're shifting the culture to say, like, actually, you can earn more money by restoring the forest than you can by producing palm oil. But you just like this will work if there is a lot of invested people that are able to make that happen. You need people with money to be hiring these people. So if there's nobody there to give them subsequent work or to replace the oil palm farming, then they're on their own and they have to do whatever it takes to get an income. And I think people don't understand that, which is why I was at this conference in 2012, there was an orangutan project who were advocating for like, this conference is bad, blah, blah, blah. We think of the the mothers and their babies. And the head of the conference was like, okay, you can come in and you can all sit into the rest of the conference for free. And we all know how expensive conferences are. So I was like, oh, that's a good deal. Like they should take this up. They chose their ignorance over participation in this conference. So that's what's in my mind now for these like boycotting palm oil people. They choose their beliefs over actually trying to understand or even like having an opportunity handed on a plate to them to understand. And they're just like, I prefer my views and that's it. So I don't know what we can do with that kind of mindset circulating in the industry. 
Yeah, no, that's, I was trying to engage with them at first and like really try to understand, but at some point they just like, you know, keep spouting the same articles at me. And it's like, I understand. I understand it's ruining. <laughs> we don't disagree on that. It's the solution. But what else was like, I was going to say something else, but that's really cool that, I mean, you're a real go-getter. You write your own book. You get subway to boycott palm oil. Wow. Like you just are like, I have an idea. I'm going to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when nobody will hire you. You have a lot of time to just do things, you know? <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Did you have anything else you want to add? I'll, I'll put all of your links in the show notes so people can head over to the community and follow you. I actually want some advice from you. So okay. I feel like I am a, I, well, your URL on Instagram is fancy scientist, right? Yes. And I, I really admire how you draw a light on people who are unconventionally fancy in science, but oh, I'm one you. of those people that is like the traditional, I only wear jeans and a t-shirt and boots because I've only ever had to wear that. How do you start to get more fancy in science? Like what are my baby steps to becoming a fancy scientist? Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. I've never been asked that before. I would just like choose things that, that you like. Like, I mean, like, I think that's the thing I, I really like about my definition of fancy is like some people thought it meant like rich or glamorous and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but it's kind of like accessorizing and like choosing, I don't know, like fun fashion and colors. So I would just gravitate towards stuff that you like. It's funny that you asked this now, because I feel like as I've gotten older, I'm becoming less cool. Like, I don't know what's trendy. <laughs> and my niece, I was talking to my niece and I was, I was talking, chatting to her through a TikTok <laughs> of all things. And I was like, I need a wardrobe update. And she's like, no offense. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I know. So uh, yeah, no, I would just like go like, I mean, wearing like dresses or, or like jewelry is a good way to do it. Or makeup is a really easy way to do it too. But, but I mean, we have people who, you know, wear bow ties and, and tuxedos. So you can do it many different ways, but I would just gravitate towards things you like, like maybe create a vision board or something like, like on Pinterest, like save images mm -hmm. of things that you like. I did try searching for outfit inspiration on Pinterest and all that came back was like, big sweatshirts and ripped jeans. So maybe not mm. Pinterest or like business suits. <laughs> yeah, or, or, I think there's like a level of imposter syndrome about looking too fancy mm -hmm. in like a conservation conference or office or something. So I feel like you have to have that confidence of being able to own your space. And maybe there's a correlation between not being valued that we think we have to take up as less space as possible. So maybe it's like a sign of protest to our worth to take the time to like, say like, I'm loud and mm -hmm. proud and I'm wearing patterns and I'm here and I'm showing up and you need to respect me. So I think that's yeah. something I'm going to work on. <laughs> I think, I think for me that in graduate school, we were told that sometimes explicitly, but most of the time it was implied that if you're not working on your research, you're wasting time and you're doing something frivolous. So if people saw mm -hmm. you with makeup on, they might assume it takes you like a half an hour to do it. When in reality, it took me five minutes and it doesn't take you any different to, or any more or less time to dress up than it does. If you dress down, you're still putting on <laughs> pants and a shirt and stuff. True. So that's the impression I was worried about conveying. And I did dull myself down a little bit, but I honestly just feel better when I dress up, like, and especially at conferences. So then I started going the other way and really doing it. And for the most part, I'm, it, honestly, it was mostly in my head. I felt that people perceived me a certain way, but in reality, they treated me the same way and even new people I, I met. And I do think that 
people are getting fancier at conferences. People are really, this is something I love too. People really embrace biodiverse fashion. So if you can find Mm -hmm. fashion that has like animals on it or plants, fungi is pretty hard to find. Yeah. Other kingdoms are pretty hard to find too, but animals are plants. Those are really fun things to wear at conferences and they're great concert conversation starters too. There's this brand here in Australia, I don't know if it's in America, called Dangerfield, and they have a lot of native animals and plant patterns. So when I go to mm-hmm. a conference, like everyone's in their Dangerfield, like cockatoos <laughs> and gum nuts. And it's like, oh, we all shop at the same place. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much once again. Thank you for having me on. It's been really cool to talk to you, especially because you have that experience. I've never talked to anyone who's also had the same experience as me in the palm oil space. So that's been super interesting to talk to you about that. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, cool. I was worried about asking you. (laughs) Maybe she won't want to talk about it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's hard. Yeah, because you're essentially advocating for a bio something that's causing destruction. But there's no there's no there's no other solution. There's no better Mm -hmm. solution at this point. We're advocating for biodiversity and species and in fashion and in everything. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was such a great conversation. I had so much fun talking to Jessie. So if you want to read her story and other stories, head over to lonelyconservationist.com and you can find her on Instagram at lonelyconservationists. Her book is How to Conserve Conservationists. I love that. And she also has a podcast that um, follows along with the book, How to Conserve Conservationists. And you can also find her on Twitter at at Lonely Conserve. So that one's a little bit different. All of these will be in the show notes in case you forget I'm trying to figure out what to record next week. We have a bunch of interviews lined up. On Monday, I'm interviewing Rob Nelson, who works as a wildlife and science communicator videographer. So I am super excited about that. I have some more interviews lined up. I was thinking about doing a podcast about productivity and greenwashing. So if you guys have ideas, let me know. I also do Facebook Lives every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time if you have questions about wildlife biology careers. This applies to ecology, zoology, etc. You can send questions to hello at fancyscientist.com or just send me messages through my social media at fancyscientist. With Instagram, there's an underscore in between fancy and scientist. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. I know a lot is going on in the world, so take care of yourself and be kind to animals and be kind to each other. Bye.